0: We get embroiled in the cases anyway. And you'll see as we talk about these issues where that all fits in. They're the backbone of the emergency department, and they're also your weakest link. Where does a business about pain
1: come in here? some RN getting chewed out by a neurosurgeon.
0: And that it's really an ordinary malpractice issue.
2: Fifteen bucks a bottle. Buy it. You'll like it.
3: Rick here, Risk Management Monthly, January 2009. Don't forget, to change that year whenever you write those charts out now, guys. This is a very special issue we're going to be doing with you. We have a Skype issue. Skype is this great service that is allowing us to talk on a conference call around the country. We've got Greg Henry in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
2: Skype isn't that good, Rick. I'm sitting here in freezing Ann Arbor, Michigan, instead of sitting out there drinking a pina colada around your swimming pool so it's not that good go ahead well
3: yes it doesn't change the weather Gregory this allows <laughs> us to talk together then we got Mel Herbert here in Woodland Hills California
1: I am actually sitting around by the pool drinking a pina colada I just want you to know that Greg <laughs> yeah,
3: <thanks. laughs> you know, we really don't want to tell you what the weather's like here today honestly it's god awfully beautiful the sun's out it's probably in the low 60s but the special part of our session this month is we have a guest a special guest Robert Bitterman MD JD is going to be with us at his home in Harbor Springs, Michigan, which is probably in more snow than you are, Greg.
2: Absolutely. It's colder than hell there.
3: Bob is a doctor lawyer, but he has an area of uh, particular expertise, and that's Imtala. We thought we would devote this issue to creating the Imtala Save Doctor. Now, we've been talking in the past about malpractice suits and the like. This is not about malpractice. This is about getting into trouble where your malpractice insurance is unlikely to cover you because you will have broken some kind of federal law. Bob is truly an expert at this, follows the litigation thoroughly on this, and is the president of a Bitterman Healthcare Law Consulting Company and is also the vice president of Emergency Physicians Insurance Company, otherwise known as Epic. You probably see their ads in the trade journals with some frequency. So, Bob, welcome to Risk Management Monthly.
0: Thank you, Rick, Mel, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here, and I hope I can get word in edgewise as we go through this.
3: <laughs> Bob, you're the star, man. We're here to listen.
0: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and welcome, everybody. And this is about Imtala, And we're going to start off, we have a plan, and we're going to go through some of the issues, and then at the end of each of those issues, we'll sort of let the group banter in and bring up points, questions, or other issues that need to be addressed. The first thing is sort of understand why is this important for you as an emergency physician? Well, there's two main reasons. First is it governs everything you do. Interactions at EMS, time patients gets on the property, registration, triage, your exam, history, physical, labs, x-rays, doctor's involvement, involvement of consultants, discharge, planning, transfer, et cetera, entirely controlled by this law. So it behooves us to be experts in MTALA, all of us, all emergency physicians. And the second thing is the consequences of noncompliance are draconian. We'll mention this as we go through each of the sections, but sort of an overview here is recognize there's two areas of regulation or enforcement. First is Regulatory. And that's the government. CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, can terminate the hospital for Medicare or fine the hospital up to $50,000 per violation. So when the hospital figures out it's entirely responsible and liable for everything you do in the emergency department as an emergency physician and the on-call physicians, it becomes very interested all of a sudden because if it gets terminated for Medicare, that's the financial death sentence. So hospitals will do anything it takes to come in compliance, and that means changing Policies and procedures in the emergency department, firing a nurse, firing a doctor under threat of your contract, that's exactly what they'll do. So it's a big deal for hospitals. The fine's not the big deal, it's a termination from Medicare. Physicians also can be fined or terminated from Medicare, and that is something what Rick was referring to is not covered by your insurance. The fines come out of your own back pocket, and you had better even check with your insurance to see if they will defend you for the regulatory actions, which are really peer review hearings, which question your judgment, so that you need to check with your insurance carriers. But the real big issue nowadays is the civil liability issues, and Rich sort of mentioned this at the beginning. This is the fastest growing area of litigation against hospitals, plaintiffs' attorneys are figuring out how to use MTALA to go after hospitals. The hospital can be sued directly for anything the physicians do, including us. Don't even have to name the physician, in fact you cannot sue emergency physicians or any physician under MTALA. but that's sort of a tainted victory because we always get third-partied in, and if you remember us as emergency physicians always sign those indemnity clauses in our contracts with the hospital. So there's contractual indemnity and there's other ways that hospitals can sue us for the losses they incur under MTALA. so we get embroiled in the cases anyway. And we'll talk more about the civil liabilities as we go along, because recognize If the hospital is sued in federal court, the state peer review protections do not apply. So all the peer review materials you did will be introduced and used against you in court. And there's been a number of big cases in that regard already. Tort reform might go out the window. California court just a few weeks ago said that the caps in California, your MICRA that you got out there, Rick and Mel, doesn't apply to screening claims under MTAL. So it's a way to get around MICRA. Contrary, the Sixth Circuit and other circuits have said it does apply. So we've got to split across the country. So the plaintiff's attorneys are very busily scurrying around trying to morph everything that goes on in our emergency departments into MTALO claims to go after hospitals, to avoid tort reform, and avoid peer review protections. And you'll see as we talk about these issues where that all fits in. Other objectives here, we're going to try to tell you what you need to know to MTALO-proof your practice. And you have to think of this as not just the ED, you've got to think about it as hospital-wide. And that will become very evident. And the last thing is we're going to try to point out the major pitfalls you need to avoid. Where are the consistent errors in both the courts and the CMS that you can learn today to avoid tomorrow? Now, as we go through this, I've sort of adopted sort of a compliance check this mode. I'm going to sort of check off things that you need to check off and understand when you're trying to work in the emergency department or manage an emergency department. And the first two are relatively straightforward. One is you have to have an MTALA policy. And this can't be just an ED policy that goes on transfers or MTALA policy. It's got to be a hospital-wide policy. So you can't think of EMTALA as just an ED law. It really encompasses everything about the institution. Now, the problem with these hospital-wide policies is that most of the time, the emergency physicians have never read them. And you don't know what's in there and how it basically controls what you do because that's the standard. Once you start writing policies and procedures, and this will be a very consistent theme today, that's the standard to which you will be held under this law. You essentially set yourself up for your own standards and your own compliance issues as it relates to EMTALA. And this failure to follow your own rules, my word for it, will come up again and again. So the first thing is I suggest to you someone from the emergency department should be charged with reading these things who understands the law and can explain to the hospital how it needs to be changed so you don't get boxed into something that you know you can't do or you can't do on a reasonable basis, on a regular basis. And consistent with that, the second thing is you have to educate everybody, the usual people you would think of in the emergency department, But everybody else that comes in contact with patients can put the hospital at risk. So this includes particularly the medical staff, and there are actual regulations that require the medical staff be in service on a regular basis regarding their on-call and transfer acceptance responsibilities. Risk management, legal counsel, administration, the candy stripers, the security guards. All it takes is one security guard to say, oh, it's real busy today, why don't you come back tomorrow? Well, that's an illegal transfer under federal law. So everybody who comes in contact with patients as relates to the emergency services has to be educated on this law. And the greatest link clearly are the on-call physicians, and we'll come back to that later. Now, the biggest issue as it relates to emergency medicine, and we're going to talk mostly about this today, is the medical screening requirement. We have a duty. Anybody who shows up has a federal right to a medical screening exam to decide if their medical condition is an emergency medical condition. So that's our responsibility. And the first thing is we have to decide where do we do that. The ED is now called a dedicated emergency department. Yeah, I thought CMS passed that to say because they thought we were so dedicated to emergency medicine, but it was really an area which is dedicated to the care of potential emergencies. So it's not just emergency departments that qualify. An urgent care on campus, a fast track attached, labor and delivery, a PEDS ED, all of those aspects are emergency departments under this law and have to comply exactly the same. Your labor and delivery department may not know that. The second thing, and this is an area where a lot of hospitals get in trouble, is we as an institution, the board actually, has to designate who is qualified to perform screening exams on behalf of the hospital. So you have to put it in a document and get approved by the board. And be very careful how this is written. Some places put down emergency physicians to do it. Well, that means your medical staff does not have the authority to examine patients in your emergency department. It also means those PAs you've been using forever are illegal. So you have to put down nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs under the direction of physician, members of the medical staff, credentialed members, and it can be different in different areas. So you can use PAs if you want in a fast track only. You can use nurses in labor and delivery, subject to state, nurse practice acts, etc., but you have to write this down. And this, again, will come back to haunt you. I'll give you a few examples in a minute. And then the big thing about screening is you have to define your screening process. We'll talk about this. Is the medical screening exam adequate or is it appropriate? Well, the language in the statute and the way the courts interpret it is appropriate. And what they mean by that is if you put something together that's reasonably calculated to decide who's got an emergency, then you kind of do it the same for everybody. So the courts look at this process. And the way you should define this is not how you typically write policies. It should be our typical screening process is the following. All patients who present will be assessed by a nurse. Don't say triage because sometimes you do it in the back. Will be assessed by a nurse. They'll be placed in an examining space. You notice I don't say room anymore because you've got to use those hall beds. Vital signs will be taken as appropriate. Physician will evaluate, examine through a history physical, order those lab tests, consults, admission, discharge, transfer as indicated under the judgment of the examining physician. That is your screening process because that's the process you're going to be held to. If you write down, all patients will be triaged within five minutes. All patients will have vital signs repeated every two hours while they're waiting out in triage. All patients will be reassessed every 10 minutes or every two hours. Then that's the standard under M'tala, which you will be held, and basically they're impossible standards. We can't meet all those standards. So you've got to give yourself guidelines and wiggle room from an MTALA perspective. perspective. And change that so you don't have M'tala issues as it relates to this for screening components. Because that is exactly what plaintiff's attorneys do. They hire a nurse. They subpoena the hospitals, all their policy and procedures, and they have the nurse in the back room and say, find me one that they violated so I can sue the hospital under tell." It's exactly what happens. That's a big deal. The other thing you need to do is address the treatment of non-emergencies. Everybody thinks, well, if it's not an emergency EMTAL, doesn't apply. That is not true. EMTAL applies to any medical condition until you screen them and decide it's not an emergency condition. So a patient for suture removal, a patient for wound check, patient who's got, quote, a hangnail, unquote, the triage says it's nothing gets the exact same exam, and then the scope of your exam may be different based on the condition. So take a look at the fingernail. Oh, yep, that's a hangnail. You're done. There's no emergency. Or you might say, oh, that's subbacterial carditis. You need blood cultures, IVs, admission. So the scope of the exam depends on the presenting complaint and the physician's judgment. And here again, you don't want to say all patients with chest pain will get an EKG and cardiac enzymes. Well, it may be true for all cardiac patients, but not all chest pain patients. They got zoster, they don't need anything. All patients a headache get CAT scans, you box yourself. You don't want to do that. Other issues that are common pitfalls you need to address is how do you handle private patients? They should be put in a queue, seen by nurses exactly the same as everybody else, not a special path off to the side. Minors, another area. Consent is a creature of state law. MTAL is federal law. It preempts any state law with which it conflicts. So EMTALA says you will, shall, examine all patients who present. Irrespective if they're a minor, you must examine them. Sure, you go ahead and try to get a hold of the family and the mom, but never delay starting the screening process or stabilizing any child waiting for consent. That's a joke. Triage? Triage is not a medical screening exam. It's part of the process of assessing them, but it's really decide the acuity and the order in which they're seen by the person designated to do the screening on behalf of the institution. Don't think because the nursing has assessed the patient and said, I don't think they have an emergency, that counts. That doesn't count for anything. Other screening issues, look at your interaction with labor and delivery. Who goes upstairs, who doesn't? What's the process? What's the policy say? Who transfers them up there? You need to have that ironed out as well. So all these policies and procedures, minors, triage, private patients, screening process, they're the backbone of the emergency department, and they're also your greatest and weakest link when it comes to MTALA issues. In terms of pitfalls, be careful how you designate, watch policy procedures, and don't think just because they don't have an emergency mentality doesn't apply. It applies until you have evaluated the patient.
2: Bob and I, by the way, go back about 35 or 40 years, depending on how you look at it, and have a long history with regard to this issue. Bob, I think we ought to point out the fact that emergency docs always think that their insurance policy is going to take care of anything that happens. Can you give us some examples where the insurance policy with regard to MTALA just doesn't hold up and that they're not interested in
0: defending you in an MTALA-related case? Well, the first thing is they can't pay your fines. So you're always on your own for your fines. The second thing is... If you have a peer review hearing, like if the government gets involved, CMS and then the Office of Inspector General is the one who actually requires the peer review hearing and sort of a litigation process about whether you'll be fined and terminated. That process is often not covered by malpractice insurance. Some insurance companies will cover it up to a certain amount, like to provide $25,000 for legal fees, which is usually adequate. But you need to check that. Now, in terms of if the hospital gets embroiled in litigation and you get third partied in by the hospital, those things are typically covered by your insurance because it becomes in the scope of your clinical practice. And it's your clinical practice that put the hospital at risk and you at risk. So that portion of it is typically covered by your insurance. So It's really only the regulatory aspects is dealing with the office inspector general. A word about that is many times the government will come in and the hospital will say, hey, doc, go talk to the regulators. They just want to know what happened in the emergency department, explain everything. All that stuff can be recorded, used by the government against you, and obtained by the plaintiff's attorney, and later used against you in court. That's all available by the Freedom of Information Act, and it's all admissible evidence, because it's a statement against interest, and you're involved in that. So if you're going to get involved in something, and something cruelly went wrong, you need to have legal counsel, and separate your interest from that of the hospital's interest. They're not always aligned. Well, I Um, think
2: we should probably make it very clear to the docs that they know what their insurance policy covers, whether the insurance company is going to do something called defend under rights of reservation, which means they may actually begin to pay the defense. And if something comes up which shows that you have violated a federal law, they may be under no obligation to continue to defend you. And obviously, they're never under obligation to pay a civil penalty, which has to do with the violation of a law.
0: I know of no case where in civil court – now, I'm talking about civil. Remember, what Greg's talking about, fines and penalties and things, that is regulatory. But in civil case, which is the lawsuits against the hospital and physicians' involvement, I know of no case where an insurance company hasn't entirely defended or paid the claims in those cases. Now, I will say this. Is don't think that hospitals don't sue their physicians. If the hospital is going to lose a million dollars because the physician caused the hospital to lose money in an optal claim, you bet they're going to sue the physician to go after their pot of insurance money. And In fact, if it's a nonprofit institution, the board probably has a fiduciary duty to protect the assets of the hospital and sue their physicians. So don't think that doesn't happen. That happens all the time. The average physician does not have to worry about the civil litigation in terms of their insurance company not covering them. Bob, you made an interesting point with the fact that you need to follow your own
2: policies and procedures. It's interesting that you essentially set your own standard of care as soon as that piece of paper appears in a legal
0: action. Yes, and you do that both for standard of care issues and for EMTALA compliant. So that's why when I talked about what the process in your screening policy should be, it really should be that descriptive process of how we put patients through our department. It should have nothing to do with timeframes, standards, policies, and specific procedures. Now, you can have, we'll accept the ASAP chest pain policy as a guideline. That's okay. You can have goals, guidelines, but you can't set this as policy. You can't set this as standards or you will bury the institution.
1: Bob, I've got a question. So does that mean that when we're writing our policies, we should dumb them down? We should make them as easy to comply with as possible? Or do you end up getting bitten somewhere else if you do that kind of thing?
0: Policies can address the issues you know what the issue is you want timely involvement of triage you want compliance with certain medication protocols but you can write it in a way that tells people what they need to do but yet doesn't box the institution so you avoid things like shall always never specific time frames for things that you know are unreasonable to say that all patients be triaged within 10 minutes or 15 minutes just isn't gonna happen a hundred percent of the time so all patients be triaged as soon as possible with a goal towards five to ten minutes so, you can set the expectations in your discussions with your staff. Look, we really want to triage everybody within five minutes, but it's just not written down that we will triage everybody in five minutes.
1: Can a nurse do a medical screening exam, or do they have to be a med level provider?
0: Nurses could under the law, but they never should in the emergency department. It's too difficult. We make enough errors as emergency physicians, board certified, 30 year trained emergency physicians experienced, that you never want nurses to do that. It's not illegal. Although CMS will usually say, and they have even said this for emergency physicians, well, you should have had a pediatric neurologist evaluate that because it was so complicated. and You had one on call, therefore the screening by the emergency physician wasn't adequate. So I think it's a mistake to ever use nurses in the emergency department. There's been places that have tried that, started it, most notably in California. I'll pick on you guys again. But they've ceased doing it because they recognize the limitations and the risks of doing so.
2: Bob's earlier point about the fact that different areas of the hospital function differently though are important because we send patients up to labor and delivery all the time who are seen by experienced labor and delivery nurses who know a hell of a lot more about labor and delivery than the emergency docs do. They make decisions whether a patient should stay or they can go home and come back in as their labor develops. And so this is not uncommon for other areas of the hospital where there isn't
0: a physician full-time in attendance. Greg is right, but let me point out a legally important point. They do not make medical decisions. What they do is they provide all the data and then they call a physician who legally makes the decision. Because the nurses under the Nurse Practice Act don't have the authority to make medical decisions. But in reality, Greg's right. They decide everything. They call the doc and the doc rubber stamps it and says, okay. But as long as that call occurs, that process complies with Talent and it complies with Nurse Practice Act in almost every state. Not every state. There's some states that nurses can't even do what Greg has commented on. But in most states, that's entirely true.
3: You know, I have actually been very concerned about patients over 20 weeks going directly to labor and delivery because unless your hospital has, board of directors has approved those nurses to do a medical screening exam, which probably they haven't and which, Bob, you've recommended they not do, then a physician needs to get involved. And one of my concerns is, is that, yeah, they may know everything they need to know about a pregnant uterus, but what do they know about a UTI, a strep throat, I just don't feel well kind of thing. They're not really qualified to do a lot more than to assess the status of that pregnancy. And I'm often very concerned about 20 weeks, up they go, they're treated totally differently. Those women are treated like a life support system for a pregnant uterus. When in fact, I'm very concerned about the broader assessment of these cases to see really what's wrong with these patients.
2: They've changed a lot of this. I don't see that anymore where all things are sent immediately to labor and delivery. If they're there with a broken finger or with a UTI, the vast majority of hospitals these days have that problem looked at by someone else. If they find it's related to the pregnancy, or they're now having contractions in the uterus, or there's slow-wave decelerations, then they go upstairs. But I think the majority of hospitals have seen the error of that situation, and at least I don't see that anymore.
0: Most of them write it over 20 weeks for pregnancy-related only complaints. The so other complaints, trauma, anything else stays in the emergency department. And Rick, I do think it's okay to use nurses up in labor and delivery, provided they have the right credentials, training, backing of the OB department, and are approved by the board, and they always call the obstetrician on call to get in final okay before they make a decision. And that's what goes on in most small hospitals all across the country, and it's a very reasonable process. And CMS says that process is okay. Specifically, we've had very pointed discussions with them directly on that issue. So it's the Nurse Practice Act in most states that gives that more problem than CMS in the mentality issues. And they always have the ability, If look, we find something we don't think it's that to send them back down to the emergency okay. department. And in some hospitals, they go through labor and delivery, and then they always come back down to the emergency department to make sure there wasn't something that was non-pregnancy related. It's really not an area I've seen many problems. It's more the blatant non-following of the policies that gets them in trouble rather than the nitty-gritty about the medical issues.
3: I'm glad you guys are working at safe hospitals in that regard, but I can tell you that I don't think that this is universally followed. I I often think that the clerks at the window say, oh, 20 weeks pregnant, just go right on to the labor and delivery. They'll check you out over there. They don't come back to the emergency department. They don't get proper aftercare instructions because the labor and delivery department doesn't know about aftercare instructions the way we do. And they're not seen by a physician, so there's a different standard of care in terms of we're not exactly quite sure what's wrong with Mrs. So-and-so, but she's 20 weeks pregnant and up she goes. My point is that if your hospital does that, you need to be concerned that there is the opportunity to make a mistake.
0: Rick, let me make a comment about what you said, different standards of care. It really isn't from an entail perspective. Entail really is an anti-discrimination statute. It wants you to treat everybody the same. But as long as everybody over 20 weeks with a pregnancy-only related complaint goes up to labor and delivery, then that's non-discriminatory and they are getting the same standard of care. They're all getting the same care up there. It becomes an issue if some stayed in the ED and some went upstairs based on the same triage criteria. Then you might have different standards of care. Otherwise, it's not a problem from an EMTALA perspective, but it may be an issue that relates to standard of care, and your point is well taken that hospitals should be concerned about this and make sure they address it appropriately.
1: Can I take us to a different topic for a second, and that is, what about the phone? So the phone rings, somebody calls and says, i got this headache, and a nurse or even a doctor picks the phone up and says, oh, look, you'll be fine, go see your GP tomorrow, and then they end up having a subarachnoid. Is that an EMTAL violation?
0: No. EMTALA requires physical presence on the property before it triggers the screening component. So phone calls in from patients, families, doctors' offices, nursing homes, etc., do not trigger the MTALA requirements. Now, having said that, we can talk a little later about EMS and whether EMS telemetry, a phone call from an ambulance into the hospital and medical direction by the physician, whether that triggers MTALA, because that's different depending on where you live in the United States. Being an old doctor, Bob will support
2: this, We've been through several iterations of what constitutes coming to the emergency department. And this has been an argument right from the beginning of the legislation in 1986 to when the final rules and regs were written years later. But the phone, I don't think, from someone on the other end who is not associated with EMS has ever been a question. Now, it can still be a civil litigation. It can still be stupidity. We don't recommend that you give advice over the phone, but whether it's an EMTALA violation, I don't think that that's ever been considered an EMTALA violation. you agree with that, Bob?
0: Yes, and the only issue that comes up is medical direction. Every state has some sort of qualified immunity for hospitals and physicians who give medical directions to local EMS. Well, that's state protections. Remember, this is federal law, EMTALA, and on the West Coast and the East Coast, the First Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, This is Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut. And on the other side, it is Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, Nevada, California, and Arizona. The phone call from medics into EMS could trigger a coming to the emergency department because the courts in those areas have said that that phone call counts as, quote, coming to the emergency department. Now, that's a Clintonization of the English language, but that's what those courts have said. And so, if you are not on diversion status, meaning if you have an official diversion status and you send someone someplace else for even a very good logical reason, that's where they just got admitted or admitted from. Their doctor's there. You think it's the appropriate facility based on the complaint. All of that is now subject to MTALA and puts the hospital at risk and you potentially at risk for MTALA violations and civil liability. That's an enormous expansion of hospital liability. I happen to think both of those courts are wrong. They misinterpreted the statute but that's the lay of the land in, you know, 12 14 states the United States right now. So that's an issue for those of you particularly, you know, out in your area of the woods, Rick and Mel. But the ruling on the East Coast is a little bit more narrow. Ruling on the West Coast is quite broad It brings all those issues into the potential ramifications from Tala.
2: Right, here in Michigan we're broke, but at least we're intelligent with regard to that issue. I can't think of anything more ridiculous than giving a direction to an ambulance when they've got an obvious problem that needs a certain kind of hospital not to go to the correct hospital. How they ever got this far apart, I have no idea. What our listeners should realize is that the federal court system does not have to be a number one logical or number two consistent. They can hold totally different views of the same issue depending on the federal circuit that they're in. That doesn't just have to do with medicine. If you look at the income tax decisions, they can be different in the different regions of the United States. And so it really doesn't make a lot of sense. You have to be aware of where you practice and what the courts have said.
0: Everybody should know that they should still make those decisions. Send people to where you think is the most appropriate place. Try to make sure you don't know anything extraneous when you're making that decision, like are they insured, uninsured? What managed care company they have? Try to make sure you just know the medical facts and base your decision on your good judgment. Like Greg said at the beginning, that's the best thing to keep you out of hot water. Take good care of patients. All right, we sort of beat up the screening component, but that's a big part for emergency physicians. Next is, anytime you screen someone and decide they have an emergency condition, that triggers the stabilization mandate, which on the flip side means, if you decide there's no emergency present, the law ends. It's that simple. You know those boxes at the bottom of the chart that CMS wants you or the government wants you to put in there, good, satisfactory disease? The only thing you want down there is two things. Does the patient have an emergency or, or not? Emergency condition identified, no emergency condition identified. And is that emergency condition stable or unstable? That's what matters. So if no emergency, the law ends. Whether you were right, wrong, negligent, incompetent, grossly negligent, as long as you put them through the standard process, your decision-making was flawed, that's not an imptala issue now contrast it with we've decided there's an emergency let's say a patient comes in with anaphylaxis and you now have a duty to stabilize that this is where a lot of liability comes for emergency physicians because we see lots of people with emergencies and once we decide there's an emergency and stabilization component complies so if you treat and take care of the anaphylaxis and ship them home and they go out and have a bad outcome well the plaintiff's attorneys are now rephrasing that into a failure to stabilize claim under a to go after the hospital, all the other reasons we mentioned, instead of an ordinary malpractice claim, or both. So that means in the definition of stabilizing, they actually have to be transferred, and transfer includes being discharged home. So if you admit somebody, we have not transferred them, you have no legal duty to stabilize them. And this was a war with the government for years, and they finally acquiesced and have now clearly stated, and the courts have all agreed, that once you admit the patient, the law ends. Now, my residents figured this out real quick. Say, hey, Bob, all you have to do is write an admitting order and the law ends. And the answer to that is yes, as long as it meets the legal formal definition of admitted, which is the typical definition the hospitals use in the Medicare manual. So anytime you admit someone, the law ends, whether they actually physically leave the department and go upstairs or you keep them boarded in the ED for the next 12 hours. The law ended when you wrote the admitting order. Now, direct admits come to the ED, and they're sitting around waiting. Do I have to screen them? Do I have to see them? doesn't matter under a anymore because if they came with admitting orders, formal admitting orders, the law does not apply. So this admission sort of ticket, if you would, or admission defense is a big deal for hospitals. So you've got to make sure it's formally documented, and you got to make sure you understand what admitted means. It means you typically are going to admit them for inpatient services, expect them to stay overnight, and expect them to occupy an inpatient bed, even if it doesn't happen. That's why if they happen to hang around ED for 12 hours and either go home or get transferred, they were still admitted, they meet the definition. What this pointedly does not include is patients admitted to OBS status, patients you put over in the chest pain unit, or someone just says, I'll put them up in OBS and I'll see them in the morning, and they're there for 23 hours, and then they ship them home, and the still applies to that entire stay, quote, inpatient stay. This, incidentally, is a big understanding because hospitals, we're going to get to this later, hospitals only have to accept patients who have not been admitted in transfer. So once you admit the patient, no other hospital has a legal obligation to accept them in transfer. So if you anticipate having to transfer someone in the next 23 to 24 hours, never admit them. This changes your practice. You must put it, quote, admit them to OBS because otherwise the academic center down the street will say, ha ha, you admitted them. We don't have to accept them what insurance do they have and they'll only accept those that have insurance and they'll turn down all the emergencies of the inpatients who don't have insurance so as MTALA was meant to protect everybody provide them for emergencies we now have two distinct classes of patients under this law if you're an emergency patient not admitted you can get transferred and other hospitals have to accept you you got a big subdural and we don't have a neurosurgeon and they do they have to accept you you get admitted get put on heparin for some reason now you have your subdural no other hospital has a legal obligation to accept you. You die in your sitting hospital unless some other hospital has the nice good graces to accept you and transfer. This is a big change. This is a big fought over in a war with CMS internally this last year. And this became effective just this year that all these admitted patients no longer have protections under MTAL. So writing that order has a good benefit for the emergency department. cuts off our liability, but it has consequences of difficulties being able to transfer people later if you think the patient's gonna be transferred. So that's a big pitfall and the failure to stabilize really, you know, you hear this mantra all the time, oh MTAL is not a federal malpractice act. Hogwash! You bet it is for every patient who presents with an emergency condition, whether we treat him or whether you send him home or not send him home. That's a big deal. Not much else to say about stabilization. The next is and this is where a lot of patients get in trouble is sort of the no delay on account of insurance issue. And this is how do you register people? How do you put them through triage? If you're not doing bedside registration in your emergency department, you're probably violating them Talent on a daily basis. Because what happens is it happens everywhere. Patients go they present it's some sort of reception form that says who they are, what they're there for, and then they get triage and then they go over to registration, get all their paperwork done, they ask them what insurance they have, who's their doctor, would you like to make your copay now, or here's your down payment. And in the meantime, there's space in the back and they could have been screening them. So that is delaying access to their screening exam. On account of obtaining insurance, and that's a direct violation of the law. Now, most hospitals are so busy anymore that there's never any space in the back, so it's not a big deal, and you're probably not violating it. But on the slow days, if you got space in the back, patients got to come back, and you got a bedside register from there, so you don't delay access to the physicians and the nurses and the PAs in the back for starting their screening process. But if there's no space in the back, go over to registration. It's perfectly appropriate under federal law to ask them what their insurance is, who their doctor is. Would you like to pay your twenty-dollar copay now? as long as you are not economically coercing them or, quote, unduly discouraging them from staying. Those are the two standards the government uses to assess that interaction. So if you're going to collect money on the front end, it is not illegal, but it had better be done very carefully, very correctly, so you avoid the perception and the government coming after you for saying you're delaying access to their screening examination. The next issue as it relates to screening and stabilization is can a patient refuse this? Well, of course they can. Patients always get to define what services are provided in the scope and provision of those services by physicians and hospitals. I divide these into LBEs, left-before exams, and AMAs. The elopement somewhere in the middle, but the left-before exams are the patients who are triaged, we got their records, and all of a sudden you go out to bring them back to the room, and they've vamoosed. You should have a system to show that you did not deny them their federal right to a medical screening exam you actually have to prove a negative. Very unusual at law. So always document, no answer, no answer, no answer. Check them out loud three times. And I would recommend you call them overhead once. You know, say, Mrs. Jones to triage. You don't say Mrs. Jones with the rash you-know-where to triage. But just calling their name overhead is not a HIPAA violation. It's perfectly appropriate. So that way, if later on the patient says, oh, the hospital refused to see me, you have some documentation to show, contrarily-wise, that you did not deny them their right to screening exams. This is a big deal as more and more patients go LBE as hospitals get busier and busier. AMAs, most physicians do not know that MTALA controls this process almost entirely under certain circumstances. You take the chest pain example. You think it's cardiac ischemia and they need to stay, and, and some macho guy says, no, I'm out of here. You actually have to inform that patient of his federal rights under EMTAO to screening and stabilization in the hospital, ascertain his competence, explain risk and benefits, and then make your best efforts to obtain his written informed consent to refuse. And if he refuses to sign the informed consent to refuse, you have to sign the informed consent to refuse saying that the patient refused to sign it. Now, what typically happens in hospitals, emergency departments, is the nurse comes to the doc and says, Hey, Mrs. Jones wants to sign an AMA, and and the doc's real busy. He says, Okay, let her sign the paperwork and let her go. Well, that's illegal under federal law because nurses can't explain risk and benefits. They can't ascertain competence. So the physician must be involved in all those AMA patients, of patients with potential emergency conditions that need stabilization. That's a big change in process, and it must be documented that way. And to protect the institution and the physician from liability, we all know from a pure risk management point of view, these are high-risk scenarios. So be very vigilant about making sure all those things are done, and the physician is always involved in the process. Now, if the patient says to the nurse, hey, I'm not going to wait. I'm out of here. It happens. Then the nurse writes down, the patient refused to wait for the doctor, appeared competent, refused to sign the AMA form. So that, again, there's some documentation to protect the institution. But those are big issues. Before we get on to the on-call issues, you guys want to chip in here a little bit?
2: Well, Bob, we have here on Risk Management Monthly have gone over against medical advice many times. And I think all you're saying is that everything we've said with regard to the state actions, which is really your job as physician, is to assess the patient, determine their competence, to understand the risks and benefits of the care being offered. What you're saying is we must also inform them As a general process, that under federal law, they have a right to stay at the hospital and be worked up. Is that what you're telling us?
0: Yes. And you have to, I mean, everybody does this anyway, but you have to try to obtain their informed written consent.
2: Yeah, it seems to me that what really happens is that it's the part where a doctor just says, ah, have him sign out against AMA, and they think that's adequate protection. It's your interaction with the patient. A lot of these people, as we all know, have personality disorders. They're not going to sign anything. And so we need to include in our note the fact patient refused to sign. And then, of course, we're going to sign our own document, which basically takes care of that issue.
0: Yeah, every hospital on their form should have a box at the bottom that says patient declines to sign the form. And it's signed by a nurse or the doctor who witnesses the fact that they refused to sign the form.
2: Yeah, basically what I also do is there's frequently frustrated family members there who they hate the patient more than you do, and they're perfectly willing to sign that Joe was being his usual jerk self and refused to follow the advice. If I can, I'll always get a family to put their signature down there too. I think that would probably suffice for the MTAL as well, wouldn't it?
0: Yes, and involving the family is always sage advice.
1: So nurses can't sign out patients AMA or shouldn't under EMTILA. What about mid-level providers? What about residents?
0: Mid-levels, residents, all perfectly fine. All have the licensure to be able to do that. And PAs operate under the physician's license. So it's not a problem with any of those entities, as long as they have the ability to actually explain risk and benefits related to the condition the patient has. You know, sometimes an intern might not have that capability in a complex case. But generally, it's not a problem using residents or the mid-level providers.
2: I think it's fair, though, to say that the EBTALA provision is the federal part of this. Just because you've met the federal mandate still doesn't mean that there isn't going to be state action here. And that if you've got a patient signing out against medical advice and you as the attending physician are supervising a resident, as far as I'm concerned, the best advice is to get the attending involved in that case. I've certainly had cases where the resident, didn't really quite explain to the patient exactly what the true pros and cons of the situation were, and I don't want to be in that situation. I think that you have to have a senior person who has got a little bit of judgment to walk into that room. And
0: Tal be damned, there can still be state action against you for malpractice. I couldn't agree more. You always need to get the most senior person involved. This is where gray hair comes in handy. Patients tend to listen more, and people have been around longer can explain it usually in terms of patients who are more likely to stay rather than a harried resident who is more interested in trying to get on to the next patient sometimes.
3: Bob, is that gray hair or no hair? <laughs> hey, listen, can I go back to the stabilization requirement? You mentioned you're going to decide who has a medical emergency, I kind of was of the view that Hickford decided what a medical emergency was because some of us not, would not think necessarily that active labor is a medical emergency. And where does a business about pain come in here in terms of is pain considered a medical emergency that needs to be stabilized?
0: Well, we'll take both of those. Let's take pain first. And Actually, what it says is severe pain. But it also says severe pain, such that in the absence of immediate medical attention, results in all these bad things happening to people. So severe pain alone is not an emergency condition. It has to be severe pain that that is the result of some underlying severe medical condition. You get severe back pain, we see those patients day in and day out. Well, if they don't have a herniated, if they don't have a ruptured aneurysm, if they don't have an obstructing kidney stone, if they don't have something that's going to kill them or harm them right away, then they don't have an emergency condition. So severe pain should heighten your awareness, but it doesn't in and of itself constitute an emergency condition. Bob, Rick started to refer to labor and delivery. As I
2: remember, the first bellwether case in Amtala was the Patrick decision in Texas, which had to do with exactly that issue. There was no bad outcome. The child was delivered in the ambulance on the way to the other hospital, that was the ultimate first pure MTALA case, and it had to do with somebody in labor and delivery.
0: Yeah, it was a Burdett decision in Texas. Burdett, Burdett yeah. But you're right, it was Texas. And, you know, so that where I always pull out the quote, where, why definitions matter, all these words we've talked about, we haven't talked about them, but all transfer, emergency condition, patient, stabilization, transfer, all these things are now defined by federal statute or regulation. And they may mean something frightfully different than what physicians normally think they mean. Like I mentioned, transfer includes all discharges from the emergency department or discharges from labor and delivery. In the definition of an emergency condition, nowhere in that definition does the word labor appear. In fact, the government specifically took it out because nobody could figure out the difference between, quote, active labor and garden variety labor. And when you think about it, in labor and delivery, they send people home in early labor all the time because they're simply not ready to deliver yet so it's conditions such that in the absence of immediate medical attention, all these bad things start happening to people. So even though you're maybe in early labor, active labor, garden variety labor, it's okay to go home for 12 to 24 hours because doing so, nothing bad is going to happen to you or the baby. So the definition for emergency physicians usually means what we typically think it means. So I, I wouldn't get too bent out of shape about the definitions in that respect. But it is a language game and it's a definitions game and sometimes you need to know to avoid liability. There was a
2: very famous case in Illinois, which had to do with a patient who had appendicitis. And in that case, the patient was sent from a private hospital in the suburbs down to a downtown Illinois hospital. And of course, by the time they operated, the patient had a ruptured appendix. And the claim in that case is the way you stabilize an appendicitis patient is to
0: take out their appendix. Yeah, think about it. this. is a very good example of what I was getting at. Appendicitis, we would all agree, is an emergency condition. So the ER there has diagnosed an emergency condition. Now they have now have a legal duty to stabilize that emergency condition. Now stabilization doesn't necessarily mean definitive treatment. Now in the case of appendicitis, let's say you suspect they have appendicitis, you're not really entirely sure, and what you would think they need is antibiotics and a repeat exam in six hours, and so you're going to admit them to do that. If that's what you think is the stabilizing treatment going forward, then transferring to some other hospital to have that done is perfectly reasonable because you don't anticipate – a definition of stable here, by the way, is that no material deterioration is likely to happen in route or in transfer. So if you think nothing bad is going to happen to them going from point A to point B, that's stable. That's perfectly appropriate. If you, however, you think they're going to materially deteriorate, they're likely to rupture their appendix in transfer, then they're not stable and you have to take their appendix out before they go. The definition is not really written in medical terms. It's written in terms of transferring people because that's the genesis of the law was they didn't want you, quote, dumping – this is the anti-dumping statute, by the way – dumping patients from private hospitals to public hospitals at bad things happening them in route. It's not illegal to transfer people for economic reasons, whether it's a managed care transfer to that hospital that Greg just mentioned or you know, in, on the California coast, it's a Kaiser chancer for a chest pain case. As long as you don't think they're going to deteriorate in route, that's a stable transfer even if they have an emergency condition. That's why you argue whether someone is stable or not becomes a battle of the experts. Greg's case is a perfect example. You get someone on a stand who'll say, look, they were clearly unstable. They were going to rupture. It was obvious. Then you get someone on the other stand who says, no, they weren't. I fully expected them to get there. I gave antibiotics. They had mild signs. It's only a half hour away. It would have taken 40 minutes to get an ROR. So what it becomes is a battle of the experts and argument about whether they were stable or unstable under the definition of the statute. And that is exactly all these ED cases get litigated.
2: The real problem, I think, is in smaller hospitals that cannot take care of a certain problem. No emergency physician should ever be afraid of Amtala when they transfer a case from a smaller hospital that simply cannot stabilize the patient to a tertiary level institution. If that child has a subdural hematoma and you don't have the ability to operate on that child, no matter what you do, they're better off being airlifted or sent by ground to the tertiary hospital that can operate on them. I've never seen an Mtala case on one of those issues.
0: Let's take that now. We'll skip on a call and come back to that. We'll take the transfer patients out now. If you can't stabilize a patient and your hospital doesn't have the resources to do that, you actually have a legal obligation under MTALA to transfer them. That is a medically indicated transfer. That is your responsibility to do so and then Imtala controls that transfer entirely. It tells you exactly how to do that. Qualified medical personal equipment go with it. You make sure the hospital has the capability and resources to handle the problem. You have someone accept it there. doesn't necessarily have to be a physician under Imtala. It does in your home state, Rick, in California. But you have to have someone accept them in transfer, and you send all the usual paperwork. So those four requirements, which is ordinary good medicine, are what Mtala requires when you're transferring an unstable patient. The only thing I would suggest to you, and this is the only thing I really want to say about transfers out, is you have a transfer package you rip off the shelf that tells you exactly how to do it, and you do it the same way for every single transfer out of that hospital. You use a transfer form, which is legally drafted by lawyers, not by the ED medical director, that knows how to protect the institution and the doctors by checking all the boxes off. You have a transfer checklist that the nurses check off, and away they go. And you do it exactly the same, whether they're stable or unstable, Because you can always argue after the fact whether they were stable or unstable. So you want the paperwork and the process, and you want to arrange what's called an appropriate transfer, those four elements, exactly the same every single time. That avoids all troubles with transfers out. What's
1: the definition of a transfer out when you have a large institution? Let's say you're at USC, and I see a patient, and they've got an ophthalmology problem. And I want to send them to another part of the hospital complex. It may be across the street, but it's still part of the hospital. Is that a transfer out?
0: No. That would be called movement. And they had definitions for each. Transfer actually means away from the facility at the direction of anybody affiliated with the facility, which is why that security guard at the front end can actually transfer people. It's like the same thing going from the ED to ICU. ED to urgent care, up to labor and delivery. If you're going to triage the patient, send them over to your ophthalmology area on campus, that's not a transfer. And typically, if it's like across the street, may or may not be a transfer then. Most people think of this as contiguous property. So if you're going off campus, so to speak, I would count it as a transfer and fill out all the usual paperwork just to be on the safe side. See, what it boils down to is if, like we said at the beginning, if you think it's the right thing to go to that doctor's office or that clinic on campus to get it done. Send them with all the paperwork and do the right things. That's why you know, I just whip out the packet so it's done the same all the time so there's no questions. And you're not going to have any trouble because they're going to get good care. What happens when you do it, it's like talking to the on-call things, when the ophthalmologist is on call and you send the patient to his office and now he decides, hey, a hundred bucks up front or I'm not going to see you and now the patient doesn't get care. Now you should have had the doctor come into the emergency department and see him because now you're violating the federal law. So If the system works and the patients get good care and you haven't had a problem with it, don't change it. If there's an issue of when you send them someplace, now they're not getting the services you think they need, whether it's orthopedic reductions, ophthalmologic exams. For acute conditions now, I'm not talking for routine follow-up. That's a different scenario. Like you send them to ophthalmology because you need them to help them screen. Is this narrow-angle glaucoma? Is that scratch on their cornea, is that an ulcer or is that just a scratch? You need them to decide if there's an emergency condition. Or you need them to do something to stabilize the patient, reduce acute angulated fracture for the orthopedics. Those are things where you need care done. The government likes you to always bring those docs into the hospital. I'm perfectly comfortable, and I think it's reasonable under the law to send them to those facilities as long as you're comfortable doing so. They're stable at the time you leave, you send them out. Nothing bad is going to happen to them in route to get there, and you anticipate they'll be able to provide the services when they get there. So that's an and there. So you think it's okay to go, and you have reasonable belief that the guy's gonna take care of it. If you know they routinely do the economic screening and don't take care of it, then don't send him there. You've got to have him come into the ED and take care of it.
2: Bob, let's give you the typical case that every one of us in emergency medicine sees every day. I see a patient in the emergency department, let's say they've got a lateral malleolar fracture, which we put stabilization on, we put them in a posterior mold, they're on crutches, now they go to the orthopedic surgeon on call who says 100 bucks up front or 200 bucks up front or we can't see you, is that an MTALA violation if they were on call for the hospital that day?
0: I'll give you the short answer first and then the explanation. The short answer is no. And that is clearly agreed to by CMS and has already been court opinions on your exact case, Greg. And here's the reason why. Because when the patient left the emergency department, they were stable. stable. It was unlikely to have material deterioration of that ankle injury in going to wherever they sent the patient. Now, it wasn't going to get any better, but it was not likely to material deteriorate. So what I'm telling is about is providing emergency care. It's not about providing all care. Now, that's strictly from an talent perspective. Now, Greg said something very important is that this doctor was on call for the hospital. Well, what does it mean to be on call? Is it strictly to only take care of M'tala required patients? Or is there some follow-up responsibility on behalf of the medical staff? And this boils down to how strong is the board and medical staff administrative leadership? As a physician, I like to think when you're on call, it means you'll take care of the problem for which the patient presented to my emergency department. Whether that's you agree to see him once in follow-up or you agree to take care of that problem to resolution, that's a different game. But I don't like to think it means you have no responsibility whatsoever and you can do anything you want. But that is an issue that has to be addressed at a board level to define what does it mean to be on call and what is your commitment to the community. And I remind medical staff members that they happen to all live in that community too and how do they want to be perceived by the medical community and the patient community. But that's not an Italian issue. That's a medical staff issue, and typically, it's also not a hospital licensure or state law issue. Virtually none of those states address that issue. So it's a huge problem for emergency medicine because we have less and less follow-up issues. But the place to address it is at the hospital board issue. Get the board involved. Can you answer your question, Greg.
2: Yeah, Bob. I think the real question here is, as we enter a new era and a new president and a new Congress, physicians better be very careful. If you act like kings and get paid like kings, you better behave like a king when it comes to following these patients up, because there's something fundamentally morally wrong with a country where you can't get follow-up on a kid with a fever in the next 24 hours. There's something wrong with this system, and there may be new federal legislation coming down the pike if we don't take
0: care of it. Think about the origin of MTAL, it was essentially Congress got angry about the behavior of hospitals and physicians. So if we generate enough hostility but not providing services, not figuring out the system, I think you're right. There will be additional. Some states have already tried to tie on-call to your Medicare or your state licensure. Massachusetts had a bill that went all the way through the state legislature. And so states have already trying to figure out ways to basically appropriate physician services. Don't think Greg isn't wrong that this isn't coming. Bob, can we drill
3: down a little bit more onto the on-call physician issue? This is really a very touchy matter because most of the physicians, or at least many of the physicians, don't want to take call. And if, in fact, the hospital adequately told the physicians what the risks are, once you are on call with regard to amtala, that would even drive more of them away. What do you think is going on here?
0: Oh, boy. The on-call issue is the hotbed for us. I mean, it's a huge issue for all the reasons you mentioned, Rick, liability time away from practice, time away from families. It's just a mess. And the government has had four, five, six different whacks at the on-call issue, and they've backed off successively every single time. And now, basically, they have removed all guidance from the hospital about who has to be on call, and they basically just say, in accordance with the resources available to the hospital. That's the new language that just went into effect October of this year. And so, what's a hospital to do? Basically, the hospital has to look at the complement of its medical staff, the privileges those medical staff members have, look at what typical services are provided to inpatients and say, this is what we need to provide to ED patients as well. So a hospital has to take into account the physician's privileges, and this is why, in some respect physicians are trying to carve out their privileges. In North Carolina, a third of our neurosurgeons have dropped intracranial privileges so they don't have to take care of ED head boinks and subdurals and get those patients in transfer. Orthopedics try to carve out, we don't take care of long bone fractures or open fractures. We've even had ENT try to say, hey, I don't want nosebleed privileges anymore, so I don't have to come in and take care of nosebleeds in the middle of the night. This has become crazy. This has become ridiculous. Well, what hospitals do is respond in kind by saying, well, if you're a certain specialty, we expect you to have what are called core privileges. So for orthopedics, it's set in common fractures. For ENT, that includes airway management, that includes nosebleeds. Neurosurgeons pretty much get away with whatever they want because there's not enough of them. So the hospitals have a hard time dictating to neurosurgeons. But that's the pushback. And so you're having this war going on between hospitals and medical staffs about carving their privileges out to take care of lucrative patients and avoid ED patients. And that is going on in spades all across the country right now. But CMS keeps trying to make it easier for doctors to take call. They allow you to take call when you can do elective surgery now. They allow you to take simultaneous call. They still allow senior status exemptions with some caveats to that. They allow you to use PAs or nurse practitioners as part of your call services, again, with some restrictions, meaning it's up to the emergency physician to decide who he wants. If I think the on-call cardiologist needs to come in, he needs to come in. He can't send his PA over my express request that he appear as opposed to the PA. So they're trying to make it easier, but at the same time, they're trying to make it harder by saying response times now must be written down in minutes. So it can't be called within a reasonable period of time. It has to be the physician must call within 30 minutes or 45 minutes. You have to have to set a specific time. Now, I would certainly advise physicians to have that in hospitals to work it out so you have phone response time and physical presence time. Anybody, even a surgeon in the OR, can call the ED within 15 to 20 minutes and see what's up. Physical presence depends on the nature and acuity of the patient's presentation. Routine pneumonia, you know, you talk to the internist, tomorrow morning is reasonable. He can call in some orders to see the patient in the morning. The patient going down the tubes of a ruptured aneurysm, the surgeon needs to get there ASAP as soon as humanly possible because that's when you have acute emergency You need them there quickly. So every phone call to an on-call physician should end with a mutual agreeable understanding on when the physician needs to appear to take care of that emergency. If it's immediately, as I need you to drop whatever you're doing and come right now. If it's tomorrow morning, you let them know, okay, tomorrow morning. If it's two, three hours, let me, hey, Bob, can I finish rounds? I'll be there an hour and a half. Yeah, sure, George, finish rounds. I'll tell the patient you'll be here in an hour, not a problem. Or, no, this one's really kind of really painful, really uncomfortable. I think you need to come in and reduce this fracture within 30 or 40 minutes instead of an hour, hour and a half. You know, that kind of stuff. So you should have a discussion on what that is on each and every case. So the issue about who has to be on call is a hardly fought over issue. But one of the things, and this is brought up Rick or Greg said earlier, that's where you ought to have the arguments. Decide in advance so everybody knows who is and who's not available because that way the ED knows when it can get patients transferred. It knows what it doesn't have, and it knows if it does call someone, he's going to be available. And the other reason that is is because once you are on call, the behavior of that physician is entirely controlled by MtALA. and any deviation from that behavior puts the hospital at risk for MTALA violations. What hospitals don't understand is that everything that goes wrong with the on-call issue is direct. This is not vicarious. It's not ostensible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is direct liability for the hospital. So if an on-call physician refuses to accept the patient and transfer, and the hospital knows nothing about it, and an on-call physician should have accepted the patient, the hospital is liable for the damage that occurred for that patient 80 miles away. This is a big wedge that emergency physicians and our leadership can use in dealing with the hospital to have them solve the on-call conundrum. Is that inform the hospital of their enormous liability for everything that goes wrong for the on-call system. The on-call guy says, I am not coming in. If you have to transfer that patient, you've got to send his name and address with the other hospital, which must turn you in. Or they don't come in on a timely basis. Or they give you all kinds of grief. Something happens to the patient. All that stuff, the liability is directly the hospitals. So when hospitals figure this out, all of a sudden they start taking a great more interest and get more actively engaged in controlling the medical staff. Because that is exactly what I'm telling means. It means the hospital must control its medical staff. And boy, you tell that to your hospital administration, and they don't really like that. Go ahead, Greg.
2: Yeah, Bob and I are currently involved on the same side, fortunately, in a case in a southern state, that's all we need to say, where the exact issue is not the emergency physician seeing the patient in a timely manner. It's really not even making the diagnosis quickly. It has to do with arranging the transfer and how many places he had to call to find the place that would take the patient and do the service, the procedure that was required at that moment in time. These issues are not going to go away. If I could give advice to emergency physicians listening to this, sit down with your hospital in advance, work this out, know which place you're going to call, and make sure that transfer agreements have been worked out, because nothing looks worse than the fact that you've now had to go through five or
0: six places to try and find some place to take your patient. That's a good headway into the last topic, and that is the accepting of patients and transfer from other facilities. And I'll start off by saying it's a hospital duty, not a physician duty, which comes up in just a minute. And I'll ask you a rhetorical question. Do you know who has the formal, legal, designated responsibility to accept or reject transfers on behalf of your hospital? Is it the emergency physicians, on-call physicians, nurse administrator at night? Is it any or all, or some combination thereof? Most hospitals simply haven't addressed this shit, so they don't have a formal system, so they know how to get patients in, who to call, what it is. And on the flip side is, anybody who's transferring out needs to know, again, what services you do and do not have available on an ongoing, prospective basis. And if you don't have them, where do you get them? What hospitals in the community have that resources? How do you get patients into their system? Who is the formally designated, legally authoritative person to call? who has the responsibility to accept and reject at that institution. And so you need to work all those out in advance, even to the point if you're a sending hospital, you go talk to your accepting hospitals so they explain things, you understand things, and you open a dialogue for making the system work right. And if you're a receiving hospital, and this is one of the fastest growing areas of liability under MTAL and in civil litigation, you have a legal obligation to accept certain transfers and failure to accept those exposes you to liability so you have to have a system, everybody has to know how it works, and you have to go talk to your sending facilities to make sure they know how to get people in, who has the authority to say yes, and more importantly, who can't say no on behalf of the institution. I would never recommend a hospital use its on-call physicians alone. You can't educate them all, there's too many, and you have too many rogue physicians who don't care, don't want to participate, and that will just bury the institution by failing to accept a patient and transfer. So you either just use the emergency physician, smaller number, greater knowledge, twenty four availability, know what resources are available, or you put an intermediary step with a nurse supervisor who is the first call to make sure you got resources. Because remember it takes two. It takes hospital based resources and it takes physician expertise to take care of a transfer. So you call this nurse administrative type first who checks to make sure they got beds and the operating rooms available, etc. And then you involve the on call physician and this person operates as a check, you say, look, if the on-call physician says no, you call me back because he doesn't have the authority to say no without my okay. So you have a check on the system so that you don't have the rogue on-call physician inappropriately saying no on behalf of the hospital. This is a huge issue for tertiary hospitals. This was a big war this last year about whether they had to accept inpatients, and they recognize all these smaller hospitals guys are getting off-call schedule, carving out their privileges, and more and more patients being transferred Farther and farther away, obviously more untoward results. There's more deaths, more morbidity for transfers now, secondary to the lack of on call physicians at all these other hospitals. This is a big issue now. It's getting worse.
1: I've got a practical question, which is. In our hospital, we have that RN that sort of controls the beds, but I've seen them being pushed around by MDs who don't understand MTLO that say, look, I don't want this patient. I can't really do this surgery when everybody knows that they really can do that surgery. Just from a practical point of view, have you seen any hospitals say, look, this person who does the contact has to be an MD, at least MDs fighting seems to be a little bit more level playing field than some RN getting chewed out by a neurosurgeon?
0: Yes, every hospital does it differently. The important thing is to put a system in place, monitor it, and make sure it works for your facilities. Now, if you're in certain states, like California, Texas, you actually have to have physician-to-physician contact. It's required by state law. Federal law doesn't require that. Henry Ford Hospital with Greg and I in the Detroit area, it uses a nurse transfer team, and they never even talk to the doctor. But all their doctors are on a sort of a salaried mode hospital employees. So the nurses just, if they got a bed and they know it's a service they can provide, they just ship the patient to the bed and inform the doctor that the patient's there. Other hospitals, they have the call, go to the emergency physician. You know, we know 95 plus percent of the time what our on-call staff can take care of. And if we don't, then we call them directly and say, hey, Joe, this is complex acetabular hip fracture. Can you handle that? Yeah, sure. Or no, I can't. And then we call back to the sending facility and say yes or no accordingly. But yeah, if you, you got to monitor. If the nurse says, I'm getting pushed around, you say, all right, here's the doctor who's on for the call transfer team tonight who gets involved and talks with the on-call physician says, hey, Joe, we know you can take care of that. You need to take that case. Or explain to me what's different about this one about why you can't take it. You know, okay, if that's true, then we agree. But you've got to have checks and balances in the system because you have to be right if you say no. If you're wrong, you already got a doctor on the phone who said they couldn't handle it and he thought you could. So if you say no inappropriately, you're in trouble. Where hospitals get really in trouble with this is what I call constructive denial. They put so many roadblocks in place. Well, you've got to talk to the resident. You've got to talk to the attending. you got to talk to bed people. And two, three, four hours go by, and there's been no yes or no. And that's constructively a no answer. You've basically said no by delay. And that gets you in trouble just as much as if you'd said no right off the bat for some inappropriate reason. So it behooves every institution to put a process in place that works on a reasonably timely basis – And it happens to be good patient care. The other guy on the phone is desperately trying to find someone to take care of that subdural or epidural, whatever it is. If you can't handle it, say so real quickly. If you can, say so real quickly, too. So the patient can be well served by us putting together systems that work in the patient's best interest. This is an area things have tightened up over the last year or two, but it's still an area where a lot of hospitals all across the country have major deficiencies that they need to address.
1: So we need to do a little summary. We always have to do the summary at the end and usually that's my job but Bob has covered too much stuff and it's killing me. But what I did learn, what my big summary is, is that I really have to know the crap out of this thing. I need to know it as an individual physician because I can get in trouble. I need to know it on behalf of my hospital because it seems to me from all of this discussion that this is going to fall in the hands of the emergency physician the vast majority of time. And you cannot be in a position where somebody else is expected to know it better than you. This is something you have to be expert at. Just as I have to be expert at the management of MI, I really have to know MTLA because my on-call consultants are not going to know it. My nurse manager may not know it. My hospital administrator might not even know it, although they have a huge incentive to know it well. So I have to know this in detail. So, Bob, can you summarize... And this is going to be tough for you. Summarize the last 75 minutes of your discussion.
0: I think your comments, Mel, are right on. The hospital is going to look to the emergency physicians as the experts in this area. So we do have to be very knowledgeable. I think it's also true that it touches everything we do. So we have to have an understanding how it impacts our practice. I think in terms of screening, the most important thing is to make sure you have a process. And you write it in terms of that and be careful of your policies and procedures. In stabilization, be sure you understand how that can impact the liability perspective, and that it's really an ordinary malpractice issue. On-call physician requirement, you have to know the details. You have to become involved in medical staff politics. You have to get the hospital to design, have policy procedures, and make sure that the on-call system works to the benefit of the patients in the emergency department. And in terms of transfers, you have to have a system for transferring out patients You do it all the same, transfer packet. And in terms of transfers in, you have to have a process, a policy procedure, where you've implemented it to protect the institution and, again, to get good patient care on an ongoing, regular basis. Then you have to monitor all this stuff to make sure that it goes well on an everyday basis so to look at it periodically and understand what your particular risks are from the mentality issues at your facilities directly. So thank you very much.
1: I've got to say that I cannot imagine that there is anybody else in the country that knows this as well as Dr. Bitterman. And on behalf of Rick and Greg, I want to thank you from the bottom of my bottom, Dr. Bitterman.
0: Um, that <laughs> my was pleasure. A, that
1: was an outstanding discussion. And I thought I knew Emtala pretty well, but there were many, many things there that I need brushing up on.
0: Well, thank you very much, everybody.
2: Bob probably has a conflict of interest on this. I don't. Bob's a friend for many years, and I wrote the foreword to his Emtala book. If any of you out there need help on the question of Emtala... Dr. Bitterman is the man to call, and I can't think of anybody who has greater knowledge in this area. Now, to end, we always have wine of the month. At the national meeting, at the Scientific Assembly of ASAP, I had 100 people come up to me and want to talk about risk management monthly. What surprised me is 50 of them wanted to talk about the wine of the month, which always blows me away. So let's get down to it quickly. I've got two of them for you and they're excellent. We're going to Northern California. by American. It's a good thing these days with the value of the dollar against the euro and that sort of thing, and I'm going to make just a couple of suggestions. One is a winery you probably haven't heard of, and that is Carlisle, and they have a 2000 Zinfandel, Sonoma County, and this was rated by Parker of the Wine Advocate this is a guy who's tasted the best wines in the world that rates this between 90 and 93. He rates it along with the 120 dollars a bottle wines in California, and it's 20 bucks a bottle. Now, everybody said to me at the meeting, "Well, we can't get that wine." or this that another thing. Here's the phone number of the winery, or the place that distributes for them. 707-566. 7700, I get no money from these people. These are the people you want to talk to. By the way, the guy who makes the wine should have a name, right, like Pierre, or Louis, something like that. No, his name is Mike Officer, and he's one of the really up-and-coming wine experts in California. Buy the stuff. Second wine, and again, I know you're going to not like this. Somebody's going to immediately, you know, want to get me. It's Gallo. Now, here's a quote from Parker. Occasionally lost in the focus on the enormous size of the Gallo Empire is how good many of their wines are. And I'm going to point out one which you've got to buy. This is a white wine. This is Gallo Family Vineyards, 2007, the Pinot Gris, Sonoma County. Let me just tell you, he rates this at the level of the 80. 90 and $100 a bottle, Pinot Grigio's, that come from Italy. 15 bucks a bottle. Buy it. You'll like it. Try it. If you don't like it, write to me and, you know, send me the rest of the bottle and I'll refund your money or something. This is a great wine. I tried this. I like this. Buy it. Okay, that's it, Mel.
1: Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you all soon.
2: Bye. Thank you. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Appreciate you all about participating. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now.